Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Light Watkins. Light is a best-selling author, an accomplished meditation teacher, and founder and host of The Shine, best described as the Jimmy Kimmel show for mindfulness. I hosted the show many times back in the day of Wanderlust, and it was a fantastic experience. In today's conversation, Light and I explore the topic of spiritual minimalism, which is also the subject of his latest book, Travel Light, which is an appropriately sized book, if you're wondering. Light shares his experience of living a minimalist and nomadic lifestyle. In fact, he's lived for multiple years out of a single backpack, and how this transformation inspired deeper introspection and helped him to differentiate between biological needs and psychological desires. In our conversation, Light also illustrates the concept of no throwaway moments with anecdotes that demonstrate the power of faith and belief in serendipity and letting go of the need to assign advantage or disadvantage to every event in our lives. His poignant story reminds us that sometimes life's unforeseen twists and turns lead us to something truly extraordinary, and that each moment, no matter how ordinary it may seem, can shape our future in unexpected and often wonderful ways. Now, if you want to go deeper with light, go to onecommune.com light to enjoy a free seven-day pass to his 21-day meditation challenge. But before we dive in, we're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure you are subscribed. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Light Watkins. All right, Light Watkins, what a treat, man. Great to be with you. Good to be back. Actually, yeah. this is my first time in person with you. Oh. Last time I was here, it was uh, virtually. So. Yeah. Better in four-dimensional space, time. Yeah. And I've been on your show. <laughs> yeah. Um, but virtually, so mm -hmm. here we are. We're sitting here. And it, as I was thinking about sitting here, I was reminiscing about the first time we met or, or the circumstances that brought us together for the first time. And I believe that was around the shine because you were producing and mm -hmm. starring in that mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. And I loved the idea. I was covetous mm -hmm. of the fact that you brought the shine to life because that's a concept that I was very invested in. I loved it. So can you describe for the people that never got to experience it what the shine was? And, and there's a purpose. I'm going somewhere with it. Yeah, no, the shine was an event that I um, downloaded, so to speak, in 2013 to do this event where you bring together 
it was really all the things that I wanted to experience in Los Angeles that I wasn't able to experience um, because I was not into socializing around places that were more alcohol centric. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll just, it's like that. You remember the movie Field of Dreams? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. With, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, what's his name? Kevin Costner. That's right. Yeah. He builds his baseball field in the middle of the yeah, cornfield, right. and then all these players come out. Anyways, and the whole point was <laughs> you were the that Kevin if you, Costner if you have faith and you you listen to the thing in your heart and you create it, then the people who appreciate it the most will come. So I kind of was inspired by that. That, that. that movie always stuck with me. You know, there's certain movies that just stick with you, and that one was one that stuck with me. And when I turned 40... I realized that I wasn't really being social because I just I stopped drinking when I was 25. I didn't have a problem with alcohol or anything like that. I just didn't really it didn't add up anymore. And I thought, let me see what life is like without alcohol. And I just didn't miss it. So I just kind of stopped and then I just stopped going out around places where people were drinking a lot. But I still liked live music. I still loved uh, hearing inspirational talks. Um, I still love connecting with community, sharing food, all the things. And so that's the that's where the idea of, of doing this event came from. And it started with just renting out a, a dance studio in West LA on Pico Boulevard for $50. And I was hosting this thing every week and there was like there was like 12 people coming. I sent it out I sent out the invitation to my list of 1000 people at the time. And none of them showed up. But one person who a friend of mine told about it brought like eight people. So there was like 12 of us in this room. I was basically the whole shine. I was giving the talk. I was leading the meditation. I was making the honey lemon ginger tea. Um, and I was doing the whole thing. And we were doing it on a weekly basis. And it was free. I wasn't charging anything. I was paying for it out of my pocket. And I was just a way to bring people together. And then about five weeks in, the woman who was helping me out, she says, you know, you should really take up a collection to pay for the space. You know, people are getting this for free. They're getting a lot of value. I'm sure they'll be happy to donate. And it kind of resonated. So at the sixth one, decided to, at the end of the event, say, hey, guys, we're going to pass around the hat. Just drop whatever you can in the hat. And, uh, and that'll be, that'll give us an opportunity to kind of pay for the things that we're supplying. We collected out of, say, there were 14 people there. Maybe maybe there were 20 at this point. We collected $55. So okay. I thought I was a little disappointed, honestly. Even though I, I didn't really need the money, I just thought people would appreciate what we were doing a lot more than just $55, <laughs> which is an average of, what, like $2 <laughs> a person. Yeah. But you're a yoga teacher. <laughs> hey, have you ever been to one of those yoga places? Yeah, where yeah the Brian Cast stuff. Yeah, yeah, the, the so, same thing. People yeah. drop three dollars, two dollars after yeah. this ninety-minute-long experience. So I'm at home, and I'm looking at this fifty-five dollars, and I think to myself, you know, I could just pocket this money, no one would ever find out, or I can give this fifty-five dollars to somebody at the next event and tell them to go use it for something positive in the world and help other people. That's right. That's right. And so at the seventh event, at the end of the event, I said, guys, you know, last week we raised money for the first time, $55. And you there's someone here has a ticket under their chair. I want you to reach under your chair. This guy pulls out this red ticket and brought him up to the front. 
gave him the $55 in cash and said, go and do something to make the world a better place. I know it's not a lot of money, but the message is you don't need a lot of money to do good. So lean into your creativity and come back and tell us what you did with it. Mm. So he comes back the next week. Now, we again, we have like 20 people, maybe 22 people. He apparently put some kid through some summer arts program. He added 50 of his own dollars, and the whole thing was like, I think, $100. People were so inspired, and we raised money. And that night, we raised like $150. Same number of people, but we tripled the amount of the donations. Mm -hmm. And so that started what became known as the Shine On Challenge, which became sort of like the pivotal part of the event that I, I credit with, with making the hockey stick growth happen. Because then it started to get, we started getting 40 people, 60 people. We moved to larger venues. And then cut two, we're at Wanderlust on Highland Avenue. Right. And we have what, like 300 something at people least, there. Yeah. yeah, that was, uh, God, 20, 2014, 15. 15, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was sort of precariously seated on the throne of Wanderlust at that juncture. And I remember that event coming in and just thinking, this is. This is the event I, I kind of always wanted to create. I think I've told you that before. You know, it was, it was like, what is the, the Jimmy Fallon or the Dave Letterman event for this space? Right. You know, that had music. I remember seeing, well, I think it was the first place I saw InQ. Yes. I think Trudy Goodman led a meditation. Yes. Well, you started to bring in other talent. Well, I started being able to yeah. get bigger people right. because yeah. the crowds were bigger. Yeah. So we had we had a bunch of really cool people. There Neil Strauss beat, came Neil and did Strauss, a thing. That's right. I remember there was a beatboxer that was insane. Yes. Um, an Asian kid, I believe. Yes. Was like so, just so much people. good talent. So much yeah. good talent came through there, and that's all the things I love. I love live music. I love comedy. We had comedy at a certain point. That's right. Um, improv, and we were giving away four hundred dollars cash. In in to someone who won the Shine On Challenge that night, and then what was funny is a. Like, so several events later, after after the, the donation thing started happening, a guy who was on the team won the Shine On Challenge. And I was so, like, <laughs> upset about that. I was like, why is he, like, claiming this? I, right. for, I forget how we were choosing people, but he had, yeah. he had put his name in the hat. Oh, that's what it was. When you registered, your name went into the thing, and then he put his name in. And he happened to be the videographer of the event. Mm -hmm. And I was upset because, you know, you want somebody who's not affiliated to win because it's more, it just seems more special. But right. here's what happened. He makes sandwiches and gives them out on, on Skid Row, right? Nothing special. I mean, that's what kind of the stock thing to do to give back. Yep. But he videoed it. Mm. And he brought in this oh. beautiful video and that's what shot it from like 250 I think that's where it was at the time, to like $400. We got so much money coming in because people could see it. Right. And there's power in seeing what someone does versus just hearing about it. So mm -hmm. it ended up being the best thing that could have happened for our evolution <laughs> as an event. And that's what caused it to yeah. get to that point where right. you know we're now at Wanderlust. So yeah. it's just kind of funny well, how these you, things come together. It scaled all over the country, and I know you got all sorts of coverage on every major network. It Completely organically. Yeah. yeah, We're in the New York Times. It was profiled on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. And, and the reason they were profiling it was because we were a sober event. And I was thinking, oh, no, this is much more than just not that. That was just a small little component of it. Right. 
as far as I was concerned, that was, we were really there to like be philanthropic and to bring people together and blah, blah, blah. And all they wanted to talk about was how we weren't serving alcohol. But mm -hmm. that led to a bunch of other coverage. And it was just funny because, you know, you think back, you can't, I, I never imagined that's how it would have grown. Like those were yeah. the things, the videographer who wasn't supposed to enter this thing, giving away money, um, people focusing on the non-alcoholic component. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was a great time. It was a good five years. Yeah. Well, you were following your heart. Following you were my heart. Being All the curious. Yeah. And, but the reason also why I wanted to bring it up because I have so many fond memories of it, but also, you know, you write it about it in the book, um, not in that as much detail as we just uh, unpacked it with, but um, so you wrote this book on spiritual minim minimalism, yeah. Travel Light, fantastic book, congratulations. I, um, Thank you. I know it's hard to write books and get them out <laughs> into the world. That gestation process is long. Um, and so uh, congratulations. And um, I was re reading about the, the shine component. I was nostalgic and you know remembering all that um but it also addressed one of the spiritual principles or one of the principles of spiritual minimalism which was i think i can't remember which one it was it was like number four yeah mm -hmm. it was, which you call give what you want so you mentioned you know you were at this place where you weren't socializing because you know you weren't into alcohol but you were also you know live i mean i can't remember exactly i think you moved to la years before mm -hmm. that and you didn't call yourself lonely you called yourself sort of lonesome mm -hmm. um, which i think is a interesting delineation but that because you were looking for community you actually created the circumstances for community and that was one of the principles that ladder or one of the concepts that ladders up into one of these core principles which i thought was cool i was also in between relationships also known as single and, uh, <laughs> that's true it's probably useful and i ended up meeting my girlfriend right. at one of the shine. she was volunteering she started volunteering at one of the shine events that's how we met oh, yeah. actually we met before but then she was connected through someone else to volunteer um and that and then we really connected at the shine event and then mm -hmm. that you know obviously she saw me up on stage and hosting and that gave me a certain different type of of uh dynamic in her mind and so that became something and yes. yeah i got everything i was looking there for there were people putting their names in the hat yeah. for light as well yeah. not just for the 400 but it was never it wasn't even about that it was just literally yeah, about bringing people together yeah. and yeah so i talk about giving what you want to receive um even more so it's not really about money or anything like that but it's right. like if you want to be if you want more friends you have to be friendly you have to be a good friend otherwise you're not going to be able to keep the friends that you have. If you want more love in your relationship, you have to be more loving. You can't wait for the other person to go first. So we have this habit and tendency in our society to wait, you know, to ration out the thing that we think we want because we're operating under the presumption that, um, that things are out there and it's all transactional. And if I give it a little bit, then I should be receiving back that or probably more. Mm -hmm. And the real, uh, paradigm is you want to actually give more from the right place, right. which is you're not be, you're not doing people favors to get something back. You're doing you're doing it because you can do it and you have a generosity of spirit. And as a byproduct of that, people can feel that. You know, I was just talking to a buddy of mine about Alex Hermosi, 
a lot of people are familiar with him. Are you familiar with Alex Ramosi? Yeah. He's a big influencer. He talks a lot about, you know, money and building businesses and stuff like that. But one of his principles is just being generous and giving things away and mm. showing the back end of how he's doing things. And he's built up this massive audience over the last couple of years from just being so transparent, you know, and, and that's just an, another example of how the power of, of gener real generosity. People, it's attractive. It attracts yeah. to you other generous people yeah. and other people who want to help you. Yeah, I find this to be particularly true with presence. Mm -hmm. Like it would used to really bother me when other people weren't present with me, particularly my children, you know? <laughs> and that's cool, they're teenagers. We're sitting at the dinner table, like on the phone, underneath the table, mm -hmm. like checking texts and Snapchat, God knows what else. Um, and I would like harp on them, you know, like, wait, you know, we're at the dinner table, you know, be, be present with your family. Like, of course, they'll never listen to me, but they never fail to imitate me, right? That's, that's what I had to realize. And so the best way to get what I wanted, but without really any agenda, was to become more present myself. Mm. And not necessarily always with them, just in general. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if I suspend modesty just for one brief moment, it, the ways that I can acknowledge where I've made progress in my own life is that I am able to be way, way more present with people. I don't feel the need to check my phone or to be anywhere else than the place that I am. And like you say, I feel that, that then it is almost mutually, it's a, it's, there's a, a mutual reciprocity in it. They, it comes back to you when you're that way. And you, then you begin to attract the angels that you want to appear in your life, right? Because you attract the present people um, and it's cool. When I talk about, you know, how abundance is, is out there. We just, we're either creating access to it or, or limitations to it. And, um, you know, we all have been around people who are really cheap or at least more frugal than we are. And what's interesting is you can be a generous person and being around someone who's frugal makes you a little bit more stingy with them, you know, because if they're yeah. always taking, 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 you don't want to give them as much. Right. And so that's kind of how it works. If you're operating from scarcity, people start to kind of guard themselves against that by not either wanting to be around you or if they are around you, they're, they're limiting their resources so that they're not... Um, giving more than than what they're getting from you right yeah. and you can't control what they do for you all you can control is how generous you are towards them because that unlocks their own generosity when you're generous especially when when you may not have as much as them and they see that it's going to unlock their own generosity and their own abundance so you can take someone who's frugal be generous with them and you may see them be more generous with you than they would be otherwise with themselves or with someone else. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a new way of perceiving life that where you can kind of create more experiences that you want to have. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Um, so you're a famous minimalist at this juncture or, or nomad. Um, and you've written this book that creates a really interesting delineation between sort of minimalism sort of cutting back on clutter in your life mm -hmm. and then spiritual minimalism. And we can talk about the differences between those two things. But 
maybe just start a little bit with the background of your um, commitment just to kind of minimalism as it pertains to external things and then we'll sort of migrate into spiritual um, minimalism. So give us a little bit of the background on that story and how you became a one bagger, as they call them. Well, I feel like a lot of people are now, you know, experimenting with minimalism since the pandemic and they were sort of forced into it. I was in a two bedroom, beautiful apartment in Venice um, up until 2018. And I got this internal, I call it the heart voice. The heart voice told me to move out of that and move into a carry on bag and just start living from that carry on bag. And you know, it's interesting, you and I are having this conversation because one of the assurances that I used as, um, as a way to entice myself to take the leap of faith was the fact that I had all these wanderlust. Oh, that's right. Um, that was that engagements. summer. That, that was that summer, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My book, Bliss Moore had just come out and you, you guys and you specifically generously offered me a bunch of engagements. Uh, I think there were probably like 18 engagements or something like that, right. where you were flying me all over the place. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was going to start in, in like May or June. And so I thought, okay, this is a perfect time to take this leap. Cause I've been, I've been toying with it and percolating on it for many, many months, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know when was the right time to do it. You know, Wanderlust you, pushed you off the cliff. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Wanderlust pushed me off the cliff. <laughs> Go now. <laughs> yeah, like that, that meme of that guy in the, falling back in the bungee yeah, jump. Yeah, He's right. like, wait, wait, one more minute. Wait, 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 wait. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. I'm having a full circle moment right now yeah. because I think if – I don't want to get into what, what I would have done otherwise, but that's what happened – I used it as an opportunity to to launch into this new lifestyle. So that was May May thirty first, twenty eighteen. I rolled out of my apartment into my carry on bag, and and it was I wasn't doing it to tell a story. It was just something. I wasn't doing it to write a book. I was just doing it because that's what I felt called to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was the same that same tone of mm. insight that I had when I created the shine, and when I became a meditation teacher, and when I left New York and moved to Los Angeles and all the other things that, that were leaps of faith. Paris or South Beach or all these other yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. All these other leaps of faith that ended up working out in the most amazing magical ways. So um, what was interesting about this time though, is that I'm 45 when this, when this goes down and the girl I met at the shine, she and I had bro- just broken up and I'm like, man, I want to have kids. I want to have a family. I've gotten nested. Right. I'm nested. I have like a really stable life. I've got a really great, you know, income. I'm living the dream. I'm following my heart. But this other thing is not happening in the way that I've envisioned it for myself. And I know that I'm not stupid. I know that living from a carry-on bag is not going to attract, <laughs> you know, it's not, a, it's not an automatic indicator for commitment and long-term <laughs> stable stability. Uh, yeah. So... Is, yeah. it, fl- it was flying in the face of this thing that I've been saying that I wanted, but that's the power of, you know, that's why they call it a leap of faith. Right. They don't call it a leap of certainty. And I think a lot of times mm. we look for certainty 
and we try to keep one toe on the ground with the other foot in the air and call that, a, but that's not a proper leap yeah. of faith. A leap of faith is both feet have to leave the ground. You have to be gaining momentum. You, there's a part of you that's going to be scared as hell. You don't know when or how the net is going to appear. You just trust that it is going to appear. And so I don't have a part of the story where I end up meeting my soulmate and all that, but it's still kind of playing out. But, you know, that's that's what it is. So that's when it started. And and it's been beautiful. It's been a beautiful, uh, sometimes messy adventure. And, uh, yeah, it ended up culminating in this book, Travel Light, that mm-hmm. was about... Um, what I'm now referring to as spiritual minimalism, which I I credit with the sort of internal mechanisms for allowing me to do that in the first place, right. because I want to inspire other people not to live from a carry-on bag or backpack, but to find their version of that, following their heart into the direction of something that is not quite as certain as they want it to be. Mm. Yeah, establishing or cultivating that trust in that inner voice. Mm-hmm. It's funny, in... Um, in Chinese, there's a word called mushin, mm. which is the non-deliberative heart mind, or it's kind of like kokoro in Japanese, I believe, more or less. And um, it's not the cognitive mind; mm-hmm. it's the heart mind. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's no deliberate. Actually, there's it's not there's no refinement there, but it is a trusting of the internal voice um, that I think, uh, you know, we often, we often don't follow that. We're scared. You know, there's a lot of fear there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and you set off on this, on this journey. Now, I think <laughs> um, before we kind of probe the, the principles of, of spiritual minimalism, I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of poke at a, at a few things. So I know like this is, people are also curious about this about some of the items that you actually mm-hmm. carry around with you. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a limited set, and there's one comment that you say, if you have a 40-inch bag, you're going to fill 40 inches. If you got 22 inches, you're going to fill the 22 inches. If you've got a backpack, you're always going to fill it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've continued to, to downsize. So obviously there are you know essentials yeah. that, that, you, that you bring and some people could probably guess basic clothing and stuff like that that are interesting. But what are some of the other um, elements of the kind of components that you bring with you that sort of then bridge into the spiritual part of your life? Yeah. So um, I I guess one thing, just to give a little more context, I had a carry-on, a 22-inch carry-on bag to start with because that was the largest bag that they, they allow in the overhead compartment of airlines of most airlines and uh, obviously, you know, you want to get as much as you can into it if that's all you're going to be living from for an indefinite amount of time. And what I realized is that I had too much stuff after, mm. after rolling around that carry on bag for, you know, six or seven months. And I had too much stuff because I was asking myself the wrong question. And this is something just like the shine on challenge. I couldn't have anticipated until I started doing, you know, living this lifestyle. Um, the question I was asking was how much stuff can I fit into the bag just in case? And the question I started to ask Mm -hmm. is how much do I actually use? How much do I actually need? And, um, because the other reason that I felt I had too much stuff is because literally I was carrying everything I own around with me everywhere I was going. And I was traveling at that point every week or every couple of weeks. 
sometimes every few days. And so it's just a lot to have to carry that stuff around all over the place. And people who hike the Pacific Crest Trail, which is that trail from Mexico to Canada, takes six months to do it. They talk about shaving down their toothbrush because they just don't need that other half of the toothbrush. Okay. It, just, it weighs too much. And if you're <laughs> carrying everything you own with you for six months every day, 22 miles a day, you don't need, you're like, I don't yeah. need this other pair of underwear. I don't need, you know. And so I started feeling a little bit like that, like I'm carrying too much stuff and I need to pare down. And at the same time, I'm giving talks, I'm presenting at Wanderlust events, I'm on panels, I'm doing some keynotes, I've got a podcast that I started a little later than that. So I'm carrying around my podcast microphone and equipment. And so my bag is kind of occupied, like ha well over half my bag is occupied with that stuff to look professional, to not look disheveled like I'm living out of a backpack. I didn't want to look like I was living. Plus, I'm going on dates, you know? So I think what would surprise people the most is that the largest item that I have by far in my bag is this uh, meditation puja kit mm -hmm. with the trays and bowls and rice and camphor and sandalwood powder and candles. And it yeah. takes up like about uh, one fourth of the whole bag. And That's like 25% yeah, of the possessions of the real that you're estate. taking around. Yeah. Yeah. As people this, might say, uh, I might reserve that for, you know, yeah. an extra three pair of underwear, but no. But that's something that I, I, I have used and still use to initiate people into this meditation training that I have been doing for a very long time. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, without that, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have the type of perspective I have. I wouldn't have the type of relationship I have with my lifestyle and I wouldn't be as useful um, as I'm moving around. Cause it's not just about moving around and chilling, you know, and being comfortable. Yeah. It's about using my gifts and my talents, the ones that still align with me and resonate with me to the best of my ability to help make the world a better place. And so that's, that's, um, that's a part of the deal is still doing that and helping people in those ways. And, and so I just fit whatever else I can fit around that, that I actually use. But the big game changer came a couple years in when I, I learned, I broke down and learned how to hand wash my clothes. Yeah. Which I never really understood. I would try before and it would take five days for a pair of underwear to dry completely. So there was something I wasn't doing correctly. And I went on YouTube, which is something I would do often to learn things. And, um, and I learned how to wash my clothes at night and have them dry by the morning by just mm -hmm. air drying and do it anywhere, anywhere I was, hotels, bedroom, bed, uh, you know, inns, wherever I was staying. And so I perfected that process. I actually There's have that bullet in the book. Pointed, um, it's a bullet point instruction yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to show you how to do that. But it all ends up turning into this like little meditation. And that's one of the things I realized is that as an extension of my just daily meditation practice, which I probably also also helps to inform like what I do next or how I do it. Everything that I do as a part of that lifestyle becomes a sort of meditation and you start to really embody this idea that the journey is the destination. So I'm a faster. Mm -hmm. I intermittent intermittent fasting. So I'm on a regular daily 16-8 protocol. What are what, your times? So 
11 to 7, more or less. Okay. If I really got my act together, I'd move it earlier in the day for a whole bunch of different reasons, but it's not particularly very friendly to do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I'm not neurotic about it. I play around the edges of it. It was very difficult at first. Now it's second nature. I made the conscious unconscious, which is part of the game here. But one of the keys for me along that journey was being able to delineate between a biological need and a psychological desire. Mm. And in some ways that <clears throat> just the cultivation of that ability to witness and separate those things has many applications well beyond food mm -hmm. for me that started with food. But, you know, do I have a biological need to check Instagram? Or is that a psychological craving? Well, that one's pretty easy. Um, or, you know, but like, for example, with um, the amount of clothes that you have in your bag, mm -hmm. do you have a need for more, cl more clothes than you have? Mm -hmm. mm, no, not really, right? Sometimes we have psychological cravings, like, and it's almost the, the refinement of that skill can take you a long way. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've kind of adopted more of a hunter-gatherer approach. Yeah. In in terms of what I what I wear, um, meaning, right right now it's summertime as we're recording this. We're in August, so the things that I have in my bag are mostly summertime apparel. But if I was here in the winter, and then I was going to be going to New York after this, which I am on this trip, and then to London, I would just have what I have. And then when I got to New York, I would go to a store and I would get a coat or I would get some thermals or something like that so I can layer. And then if I was going back to Mexico or back to LA or whatever, I would just get rid of the coat. So I would kind of get what I need for that period of time, depending on how long I'm going to be in an area. And then I'll just shed it when I don't need it anymore and or uh, donate it or gift it or something like that. One of the other things that I love that you uh, towed around and you mentioned this in the book is some, um, some nice note paper. Mm -hmm. And I knew in a journal, I don't know if that's in the journal or connected to the, oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah. And you just like blank journal paper. Got it. And you've developed a particular skill uh -huh. with paper. Yeah. You know what I'm Origami. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was such a cool little practice. Can you talk about that for a second? Well, you know, Michael James Wong. In London, he's like one of the meditation yes, people. Yes, 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 that's breathe. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote this book called Sin Bazuru. And, uh, um, and it's about spiritual um, you know, teachings using the art of origami. And I had him on my podcast. And so while I was doing my research, I started to follow his instructions to do some origami. And he, you know, there's this whole art of, of creating origami paper cranes as a form of meditation. And, mm. and a lot of people in those Asian cultures will do a thousand of them. And they say that by the time you create a thousand origami paper cranes, you are, you can stabilize the, the, yeah, yeah. the, the presence that you get from meditation. So I started making these paper cranes just as a kind of a party trick type of a thing. And yeah, and I just found it very, he was right. I found it very meditative. And that's something that I started to incorporate into my just, you know, relationships, daily life. And when I was going to visit places, I would make them a paper crane and leave behind and 
or maybe write a note in it or something like that. So yeah, all the things that I wrote about in Travel Light, including the origami, are things that I've actually done in my real life to help leave places better than I found them. And th that replies to another principle in the book, which is um, treat life so there are no throwaway moments and also the give what you want to receive yeah. Uh, principles. Yeah, I love the, um, I love like the attention to the small details mm. in life that can make such a huge difference, mm. like leaving people a note. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm absolutely going to integrate that into my own life and with like proper penmanship too, right? Get a Just, nice pen, get, get a like nice a nice, pen. like this is a nice little, this is an $8 pen with a nice wide tip. Mm. So I've been using these for a long time and yeah, you, uh, you have that on you all the time and you can write things down. You can, what I also like to do is whenever I hear someone who has an uh, unusual name, a lot of times we introduce ourselves. We're not even listening yeah. beyond the first half a second when someone says what their name is. And so this is a nod to Dale Carnegie, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a book that I still think about and refer to. I would say it's one of the most useful books I've ever read actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the power, the sweetest language in any, the sweetest word in any language is the sound of someone saying your name. Yeah. And so, you know, if we could just be more intentional about that, and especially if someone has a name that's hard to pronounce, a lot of times I like to ask, you know, how do you spell it? Or, or what are some ways that you help people remember your name? Like when you go to Starbucks or something, because people with difficult names oftentimes have word associations for their name. And so that's a great time to write it down. And so you just have that with you. And that could make the difference in this becoming a very deep relationship versus just some transactional thing. You know, you met this person once, you'd barely remember them. And because they'll remember you if you remember their name, their name and you pronounce it correctly, they'll absolutely remember you. Hmm. Yeah. Skyler and I just finished leading a retreat and uh, you were kind enough to come up and, and participate in some of it. And we have an opening circle at the retreat where there, it's kind of a very kind of vulnerable sharing mm -hmm. moment. And the first couple of times we did these retreats, you know, everyone would get into sort of a semicircle and we would just like go around the circle somewhat linearly or concentrically. Um, but what I started to notice was um, that people weren't listening because they were so worried about mm -hmm. what they were going to say mm -hmm. and they could see when they were next. So I was like, no, we got to, you know, we got to get away from that. So I thought about, okay, instead of that, we can still sit in a circle, but people, before we, we start the share, I'm going to go around and have everyone write their name down mm -hmm. and then with their spiritual vegetable. So essentially like if they were reincarnated as a vegetable, what would it be, you know, cauliflower or, you know, some people pick very, very bespoke ones that I've, that I've never heard of. You know, some people are, are more kind of down the middle. And then we put it into a hat and then I just pick it out of the hat and it'll be like, you know, Amanda Broccoli. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it's a nice way to kind of break up the sort of linear, linearity <laughs> of, the, of the share. And then people are more present because they're sort of like, I could get picked now. I could get picked at the end, you know, whatever. Just let go. Don't, don't worry about it. But for me, what it ended up being was like a mnemonic device where I end up uh, remembering people's names because mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Angela that's Carrot. carrot. That's you know, carrot. she's the carrot girl. Mm -hmm. Angela Carrot, you know, something. Anyways, 
very silly technique. But it helps though, really. I do the yeah. same thing on my retreats. We do yeah. we do some sort of word association with names and people remember them within an hour. You know every, all 30 people's names, um, which right. is pretty incredible to witness. Totally. That's sweet. So there's the principles of spiritual minimalism. Mm -hmm. We've kind of talked about a couple of those and we'll get into more of the seven of them that you outlined. And there's the, then there's the practices. Mm -hmm. So we talked about some of the practices. Um, kind of leaving places better than that you found them. Mm -hmm. I love that one. Mm -hmm. um, and the exercise for that part of the book is when you go to a public bathroom, <laughs> yeah. you, you leave it better than you found it. So there's trash and paper towels and stuff on the floor. You get all that and put it in the, in the wastebasket and leave it as though your personal idol is going to use it after you. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Just, I was, and it's I was symbolic. Like, what if know? Roger Federer comes yeah. in here to take a poop next? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he just yeah. wants everything yeah. proper. And um, yeah, he's one of my heroes. But um, <laughs> uh, and then there was a concept in there around one of the practices that I had never heard of before, and I love it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I've heard of the of the general idea, but I never heard of the word, which was flaneuring. Yeah. What is flaneuring? Flaneuring is an 18th century French aristocratic term for aimless walking. Mm -hmm. So apparently, back in the 18th century, people of means uh, didn't have to work. It was a way of sort of showing, I don't, I don't really have to go to work all day long. So instead, I'm going to go out for a walk with no destination in mind except for the act of walking itself. Mm. Now, obviously you have to have some, like, I'm going to walk my neighborhood. I'm going to walk, you know, but you're basically walking with the flexibility of, of deviating from whatever the beaten path is and allowing yourself uh, a little room to follow your curiosity. If you want to go down this particular street or check out this park or walk into this store or, you know, engage in this particular activity and, and it's a way of just really immersing yourself in whatever environment. And the thinking is that once you, when you do that and you make a habit of it, you begin to notice things that you would not have noticed otherwise. You begin to have uh, beautiful small moments that you probably would have missed. Kind of like that, you know, that Washington Post experiment that they did back in 2007 where they brought the... So there was a musician in the LaFont... Um, Plaza yeah. Metro Station in D.C. playing violin. And I think within 45 minutes, only two or three people stopped to watch this person who was playing this violin. And um, and most of those were kids. It was great during rush hour. And at the end of 45, at, at the end of 45 minutes, he counted up, I think, $17 and change that people had dropped into his violin case and this was one of the most acclaimed violinists in the world joshua bell oh really who have you heard about this of course I, who, well i know who joshua bell is but yeah I didn't, they I had didn't joshua bell oh in the subway station performing <laughs> in the morning during rush hour he had only made 17 dollars oh, thousands joshua. of people had passed by him and what was interesting is like uh, four days before, he was performing at the Boston Symphony Orchestra for $100 a minute. Wow. Fat, packed house. But yeah. in an unlikely place, at an unlikely time, some journalist at Washington Post wanted to see if people would pay attention if there was beauty present. And 
apparently most very smart, very studied, very cultural, cultured people just raced right, right by him. And the only people who noticed were the children. Children would stop and pay attention yes. and then they would get yanked along by their parent. And so the question that the journalist poses at the end of the article is if we're missing, you know, this person playing on this $3 million violin, the most intricate pieces ever written in music history, what else are we missing? Yeah. You know, and that's what flaneuring is about. It's about just being present to whatever is happening around you. Yeah. And I think we can all relate to that feeling of like going for a hike or something, just picking up a stick and banging a stump with it and mm -hmm. just looking around and you come across a little stream that has a tiny little whirlpool and you sit there and stare at it. And the whole thing feels like purposelessness or, you know, purposeless, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it actually reminds me, there's another uh, kind of Japanese aesthetic term um, known as yugen, which is like the etymology is Chinese. And it kind of means dark, dark. It's one of those like untranslatable, you know, like it means dark. You means dark. Zhen means dark. You're like, okay. Um, but really the, the best translation is to, to walk into the woods with no intention of return, mm. just to go mm. and wander and be mm. um, and see what arises. You know, like we used to go out um, to the lake and just skip stones. You know, mm -hmm. what for? I don't know. Watch the boats go around the dog leg. Where were they going? Yeah, and it know. sounds it sounds yeah. very frivolous, you know, and when you look at modern day productivity measurements, mm -hmm. metrics, you know, and, but you got to remember that's also Eckhart Tolle's story. He went out, he went out in Vancouver to this park bench for like two years or something like that. It was either a year or two years. And he just sat on the park bench all day long and just watched the birds. And obviously all of his family and friends thought he was completely nuts, you know, cause they're going to work. Yeah. And he's going to the park, but he's living off of them. And so that creates some friction and some tension in these relationships. But throughout that process of sitting on that bench and observing nature, he starts developing the concepts for what became the power of now, which obviously has become one of the most pivotal uh, spiritual texts ever written. And, and he's now like, I think number two in, in that list of the, most influential and prominent spiritual teachers in the world. Yeah, well, we, you know, I think we often um, tend to associate a purposeful life with something that exists out there in the future that mm -hmm. we're going to chase. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and really the process, what do you say? Like the journey is the thing, you know? And in some ways we have to kind of, release this notion of like, I'm going to chase this thing out there, which then will be my full fulfillment of my great potential. And that will then represent the meaning in my life. When, you know, really all we're ever, we're only ever here and now, mm -hmm. you know, you can't be happy in the future. <laughs> yeah. And, and just to kind of put a bow on it, um, on this, this topic, you know, 
if the idea of aimless walking seems too frivolous to sell to your friends and your family, you want to maybe reframe it as uh, this is I'm going to go practice following my heart. Hmm. I'm going to yeah. practice listening to my inner guidance. And if my inner guidance says go to the left, I'm going to go to the left. Obviously, in a safe, you don't do this through the hood or through the favela, but if you're in a safe area and something internally says to, you know, go into the shop or say hi to this person or help this person across the street or stop and smell the roses, just follow it and see what happens. And that's how you turn the volume up on that heart voice that I talk about. There's another principle that I found to be uh, very poignant. Um, I just want to read it so I just get it right, um, which was no throwaway moments. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of unpack that a little bit and then I'll, I'll share a little bit of what, what that struck with me. Sure. I'll tell a story yeah. just to illustrate what I mean by no throwaway moments. And then we can talk about the mechanics of it. So, Years ago, back when I was just teaching yoga um, here in Los Angeles, I had a class one morning. It was like every Wednesday, every Friday, 10 o'clock in the morning in West Hollywood. And I used to live in West Hollywood about 10 minutes away from the class. So I had my commute all timed out. And I'm a very like punctual person. I like like you know being on time. And there's a, that's a whole other story. But... As you saw coming here, I was giving you the update. My ETA is such and such. and Right on time. Right on time. And so anyways, I leave within, uh, I have, at the beginning of the time I always left, which is like 15 minutes before, there was never any traffic. And for some reason, when I turned on the Fountain Avenue, there was all this bumper to bumper traffic. You know, you know Fountain Avenue well. So like any good Los Angeles driver, I zigzag my way down to Santa Monica Boulevard because that's going in the same direction. It runs parallel to Fountain Avenue, bumper to bumper traffic. So I'm like, what is going on? Is the president in town? Why is there all this traffic? I'm obviously going to be late now. This is before smartphones. So I couldn't like, you know, FaceTime the place where I was going and tell them or anything like that. I was just going to be late. And so I get to... Fairfax, right? And then the traffic just starts to spontaneously clear up. And as I'm going through the intersection, I'm looking for what the cause of this this disruption was. I'm looking for an accident. I'm looking for construction. I don't see anything. There's nobody in the streets going, you know, out of their mind. So I'm just late now. I'm like 10 minutes late to this class. And I get to the class and everybody's huddled into the back of the room and I'm wearing my little flip-flops because I'm teaching and I can feel crunching under my feet and I look down and there's like all these shards of glass all over the ground and I look up and in the middle of the of the front wall the whole front wall was was a panel of of mirrors the Mm. middle panel had dislodged and came crashing down 10 minutes before I arrived right when the class was supposed to start. And guess where I would have been sitting to start the class? In meditation, right in front of that mirror. So it turns out that phantom traffic jam that I was cursing was actually sparing me from having a very unlucky start to my day. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by no throwaway moments. It's 
it's when you're doing your best and you've tried everything, you've gone to the other street, you've gone, tried to go over and above and beyond the traffic and it's not happening. Trust that you're being divinely guided in some way that you may not understand that's sparing you from something worse happening than you just being late or whatever the other equivalent of that is when you're not meeting whatever expectation you have. Mm. And yeah. that just allows you to be more present to what is. Absolutely. And and also refrain from assigning advantage or disadvantage to any mm -hmm. particular situation because you don't know the serendipity of of chains of causal events. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all probably had that experience of, you know, like the yellow light turning red right before, you know, we get to the intersection and, you know, you feel this kind of like little wave of frustration. But, oh, shit, there's a car in front of you just got hit by another car or something. So That's right. There's so many, life is so multilinear in that way. I, Alan Watts has this absolutely hilarious, wonderful parable about, um, about the Chinese farmer. I'll put it in the notes. But essentially, there's an old kind of stoic Chinese farmer who doesn't assign advantage or disadvantage to anything, and he loses a horse. And everyone pities him and then it comes back and then everyone celebrates and then <laughs> his son takes it out into the pasture and breaks his leg and everyone pities him and then the army comes to conscript all the kids and they pass his son over and everyone's celebrating you know it's like and he just sits there the whole time being like eh, you know <laughs> yeah let, let so, it keep playing out and let the camera but, keep rolling as my friend says and see yeah. what happens yeah absolutely yeah um you know this piece of the book um reminded me of another kind of stoic meditation or contemplation really um, called present moment nostalgia. Mm -hmm. So we generally kind of have this wistfulness for mm. past events and we look back and like to some unrecoverable time mm -hmm. and we think, oh God, like those were the good old days back then, you know, back at the, those days of the shine, those were the good old days light, you know, but what this contemplation does is really turns that around and says, no, these mm. are the good old days. Mm. This moment right here where I'm just absolutely present with Light Watkins, mm -hmm. thinking or doing anything else, these are the good old days. And that can be applied to so many circumstances, sitting there with, you know, in the car with my children or my daughter, taking her to dance, just hearing her yap at me nonstop, like about her dance and just be like, you know, God, man, my beautiful little 13 year old daughter, she's so enthusiastic about this. She's effervescent and effusive and she just wants to tell her dad about it. <sighs> just, these are the good old days, man, just be here now, you know? And I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh has the great poem, like, you know, when you wash the dishes, wash the dishes, right? Um, so when that, that, that piece of the book really brought up all those thoughts for me. I love that present moment nostalgia, because it's true, you know, the thing is when you look back at the sentimental moments of your life, you probably weren't all that present back then either. But, right. but the residue of that time stuck to those moments in a way that makes you reflect fondly on them. And so again, treating life as though there are no throwaway moments, this is the future in the making as well. This is going to be the good old days five years from now, what we're experiencing here. You know, back, remember back when we were in your little podcast studio, you know, off Laurel Canyon and 
yeah. you know, and just, I showed up and there was no cell service and, you know, we had to figure out when I arrived and you came out, you know, all these yeah. little things that may seem like little minor inconveniences are going to construct those good old days mm -hmm. that we're going to reflect back on fondly. And the more present we can be, the more we'll be able to have a steady stream of these good old days leading right up to whatever moment you happen to be in right now. And I think that's, that is the invitation for all of us, whatever, whatever you're experiencing right now, as you're listening to this or watching this, that's going to become the good old days for you one day. And especially if it's a little bit hard or challenging, you're going to reflect back on this as you know, this is what helped me help to propel me to whatever the next phase of your life is going to ultimately become. But so much of modern culture seems to be about avoiding inconvenience or mm -hmm. providing convenience, right? Yeah. So many comforts, you know, I often associate that with physiology. So we have abundance of food. We never experience any scarcity. We have abundance of access to entertainment. So we never experience any darkness. We always have light, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and all in the name of comfort, but it's actually these comforts that are actually creating a lot of downstream disease. Mm -hmm. But it's also, uh, there's a psychological um, and mental component to this too. And one of the principles that you espouse is to become comfortable with that discomfort, right? Yeah, you know, something occurred in my life many, many years ago when I was living in New York City that really changed the way I look about, I look at discomfort, right? So. I've gone through phases of my life where I've given up a lot of things. I've given up meat. I still I eat meat now, but I, there was a time when I didn't eat it for a very long stretch of time. Um, I've been celibate for periods of time. I have given up sugar. I've given up, I even given up, gave up cooked foods at certain points. I fasted many, many times in my life. And, but the thing that I found the hardest, even harder than things like alcohol, all these things. The thing that I found the hardest to, to go without, even for five minutes, was chapstick, lipstick, lip balm, mm. lip balm. That's not what I was expecting. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a point in my life in the 90s, in the late 90s, where I used to carry around three different tubes of lip balm at all times because if I didn't have it to apply every five or minutes or so, I just couldn't be present with wherever I was. And of course, one day I misplaced all three of them and it just took me out of the moment so much that I thought I can't, I just can't do this anymore. This is robbing me. This little thing is robbing me of my ability to just be here now. So I, I resolved to break the lip balm um, addiction. I didn't know how long it was going to take, but I just went cold turkey. And, you know, I'd done some research and I was, I was it's probably changed these days, but back then it was all beeswax, no matter what type of lip balm you had, mm -hmm. beeswax was the ingredient. And if there was beeswax, your lips would be moist for a little period of time, but then it actually dries the lips out apparently. Mm. And then petroleum jelly is like the worst in terms of drying the lips out. So I just resolved to go cold turkey and it took me 30 days of no lip balm at all, which was smile torture for me um, before my lips started to naturally moisturize themselves. Mm. And so I was liberated. I'd emancipated myself from this, 
this little thing that was like $2 that had such control over my life. And so, um, but it was very insightful too, because then I'm like, okay, well, what else, what else is controlling me that is seemingly insignificant? And so things like, you know, this is many years later when I started practicing the spiritual minimalism, things like losing luggage or um, not having light in the bathroom to shave my hair or not being able to go to the gym and feeling like, you know, something is off. And so I, I started using these little inconveniences as ways to, to find comfort and discomfort. So I learned how to shave my head with no light. I would shave it in the dark. Hmm. And then I would learn how to, like I say, hand wash my clothes. So yeah. I, and, and you came out all right. Yeah. You came out all right. So I could cut down on um, carrying things. And so, you know, not ever having to check a bag. And um, I would learn how to exercise, do any kind of exercise for any part of the body from just using a band or just using my body weight. And, you know, things like mm. that. They're small things, but yeah. it's enough to keep you present. And that's what I found to be the richer experience. Instead of allowing myself to get yanked out of the moment because things didn't go my way for five minutes, what are some what are some real world workarounds for these things? And again, these are my versions of the work exercise, being able to present myself in a certain way, being able to wash my clothes by hand without what if I don't have an iron and I have an important event to go? How do I how am I gonna handle that situation? So working out little you know, hacks for all these situations where it's just a way of me confronting the things that already I know they they bother me mm-hmm. and how can I find ways around these so I can stay as present as possible with whatever I'm doing. And so that's, again, something I encourage people to do in finding comfort and discomfort. Um, and one of the exercises that I use to do this is the resting squat. Yeah. The resting squat. So this squat. is where you've had a huge influence on me. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Because I knew, I know that you do this yeah. um, even before reading the book, and this was very difficult for me. Sure, very, very difficult. Of course, I've spent my life mostly sitting in the comfort of a chair, mm-hmm. right? And that's had certain tightened my hips. I also have a hip replacement um, that I got when I was pretty young because I had hip dysplasia. But um, I was like, I got to get hip to uh, no pun intended to, to <laughs> squatting and. It's, it's made a huge difference on my knees. Me too. Yeah. I used to have all the snap, crackle, pop yeah. when, I would, when I would bend my knees, and now that's all gone just from doing five minutes of resting squat. Um, and, of course, this is how we were designed. Yeah, or, of course. Yeah. You know, if you go uh, to any old, old world cultures, that's right. what they're doing. The guys are sitting on the corner in a resting squat with each other, talking, catching up, gossiping, and that kind of thing. And, uh, and it's just it's one of the most beneficial stretches that we can do. So if you don't have time to take a whole yoga class, sit in a resting squat for five minutes, yeah. watch a five minute long YouTube video or listen to a song. And then you have to usually put like a piece of wood mm-hmm. behind my, cause I can't get my heels, heels all the way down. Yeah. It's getting better now. Yeah. But that was a hack. Yeah. For me. Sitting on a low table or yoga block yeah. is good. And then eventually working your way down to maybe putting something under your heels and then eventually just doing it with your feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. maybe spread wide apart. But yeah, it's it's a progression and but it's such a beneficial thing to do and you it's kind of addictive too actually. It's like yeah. It starts feeling good after a while. I right? know. Now I just like I like it. I go down into it people are kind of looking at me like what 
Yeah. Guy having a taking a shit or having a baby <laughs> or what is he doing here? What's he right, doing? Right, like, right. no, just squatting. Yeah. I just read this book by Peter Atia. He's a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's also into rucking. Oh, okay. Which is essentially, yeah, and... just carrying more weight uh-huh. on you and walking up hills. Uh-huh. Pretty sim- simple he's, idea. He's pretty, I mean, he's pretty hardcore. You yeah, know? he's hardcore. Swimming across to Catalina and that kind of thing. And Yeah, yeah. But this one was just so simple. Yeah. I mean, I just have it here at my house with groceries. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically rucking because I have to go up 90 steps. Um but yeah, just just simple things like that. I mean, of course, then there's also the more cognitive challenges. So like a few years ago, I got interested in interviewing doctors on the podcast. And so, you know, I'm so uh, just, you know, risk of potential embarrassment. I was like, I have to do so much research on neuroscience this week. I read all these books. I read all this primary source data mm-hmm. and clinical data. And I was like, I didn't, there would be a sentence and I wouldn't know 90% of the words in the sentence. And I'd be like, oh, man, this is really uncomfortable for me. Like, and then, you know, I keep reading. And then I look some things up. And uh, now I know about 50% of the words. You know, fast forward another year. Oh, I know maybe 75% of the words. And now when I go into research like that, the moment that I feel frustration or discomfort there's like a little part of me that gets excited mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm like this mm-hmm. is an opportunity here mm-hmm. i don't know this but i'm curious about it and i want to you know i want to lean into it so i became comfortable with it and then of course once you become comfortable with it you have to keep pushing yourself over those walls but it's a it's a great habit to get into um Talk to me about the freedom of choicelessness. Mm-hmm. So this was the seventh principle mm-hmm. of spiritual minimalism in the book. And there's something anachronistic immediately about that. What do you mean freedom and choicelessness seem to be at odds with e- each other? But what's going on there? Yeah, so in the West, we have this idea that the more options I have, the better. So we strive to have as many options as possible. And that's one of the reasons why we try to achieve our way to happiness, because we feel like if I'm materially successful, then I have more options, Mm. more options for my kids and where they want to go to school, more options and where I can live and how controlled my environment can be and more options on who I date and more options on what the jobs that I get offered and things like that. And the, in the Eastern traditions, it's less about having external options and more about developing or cultivating a state of awareness that makes you realize which of those many options is most aligned with your heart, your intuition, your inner guidance. And this presupposes that you have a path, you have a purpose here on in this plane of existence for this particular lifetime. And that when you're on that path, you are going to be able to, you know, at some point be in service to other people. And that's going to create a sense of internal fulfillment. Um, and you're going to be able to give back in a way that helps to uh, use all of the life experiences that you've, you've had up until that point. And if you're not doing that, you can have all the money in the world, you can go to the best schools. You can be in the rooms with the highest status 
people, but you'll still feel a bit like you're not being authentic. And, and so the quickest way to live a more authentic life is to start making choices, your most important decisions based on your heart and not on external factors, mm. in which case you have to tune in to that heart voice, which is why I list that as the number one principle. Tune into the heart voice and then freedom of choicelessness is the last principle because that assumes you've done all the rest of the work, and in which case you'll have a better sense of what's aligned with yeah. your internal guidance and what's not aligned. And so there's freedom to that because you don't have to spend your time deliberating on if I should take this job or that job or this other job. You, there's one job or one work opportunity that is aligned and then there's everything else. Mm-hmm. And the aligned thing may not be the highest salary option, but there's a cost to taking a job that pays a lot, but it sucks your soul. So the highest salary on paper may actually be the lowest salary spiritually. Mm. And the lower salary on paper may actually be the higher salary spiritually. And I would argue that if you take the higher spiritual salary, that's going to end up paying dividends in ways you can't even imagine for yourself now down the line that may culminate in you having some opportunities you can't even imagine either for yourself um, that would be that would actually pay more externally than, yeah. than the higher paying soul sucking job. Yeah. I think that getting clear on the nature of your highest principles and then living in alignment with them and then making that an unconscious behavior Mm -hmm. such that you're eliminating the optionality. Like for example, you give this example in the book. I thought it was very simple and very powerful. If you're like, I am just going to be truthful. Mm -hmm. That is a principle for me uh, that I am unwavering about. And I'm going to commit to living in alignment with truthfulness such that that becomes sort of an unconscious behavior. And in a way, you're limiting your options. You're saying, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to be a mendacious person. I, uh, but that there's freedom in that. There is. Because you don't have to sit there and deliberate. Should I tell the truth now? Or, yeah. yeah. And then people know you as a truthful person. And, then, yeah. and so, I, I mean, for me, when I read this, you know, I, I conflated it very much with my relationships. So I've been with my wife for 35 years. You know, commitment is often framed within the parentheses of sacrifice, of limitation of like what you have to give up. Oh, you can't see any other women. And there's all these logistics associated with it and all this other kind of stuff. But for me, that unconditional allegiance that I share with Skylar, my wife, has allowed me to go out and like take all sorts of crazy madcap risks and pursue dreams and start businesses and fail over and over again, knowing that there's this like pillow to comfort my fall. And in that situation or through that lens, you know, commitment has always been liberation or freedom for me. And I think, again, if you can commit to living in alignment with those highest principles, there's a lot of liberation and freedom in there. Uh, But it's, it's not always instinctual, but I thought it was beautifully crafted. Yeah. Nick, Nick Saban, Coach Saban, uh, the Alabama football coach, says something that just really resonated with me. He says, 
when I'm coaching the guys, I, I try to get them to practice not until they get it right, but until they can't get it wrong. <laughs> and there's freedom to that, you know, because yeah. right. you don't have to worry, am I going to get it wrong now? Because you put in the time and the effort. And I think that's really the takeaway message from this work is none of the stuff is necessarily going to be easy, but the more we can process, we can create processes and systems for the little things and turn everything that we can into little mini meditations, the more we can embody this stuff. And it's through embodying it that you, you free yourself up from, from having to decide if you're going to do the right thing today, decide if you're going to tell the truth today, decide if you're going to take the job that pays more, but sucks your soul, you know, and, and instead you just kind of, you're on a more of a mission. You're more mission driven with everything. Everything right. is a mission. Washing the dishes is a part of your mission. Sweeping out the driveway is a part of your mission. Stopping and smelling the flowers is a part of your mission because you're following something that's bigger than whatever you're trying to achieve externally. Hmm. So I think you intuited where I was going and um, sort of ending with the beginning mm -hmm. on some level because the, the upstream foundation, if you will, uh, of a lot of these principles and practices that we're talking about really is meditation. Mm. And that's, of course, at the core of your teaching and the core of your life and your practice. So if, so maybe you could just for a moment describe kind of your relationship with meditation. And then also in the book, and I thought this was so helpful, you laid out kind of the most minimal, clear, simple approach to meditation. And I think that would be a lot of that would be really helpful for people to hear mm. uh, because I think a lot of people sort of have a relationship with meditation that's a little mangy. They, they, they know it's something that's good for them, but they can't quite get their arms around it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say all of my books at their core are meditation books yeah. with some other themes sprinkled in. So this one has minimalism themes and the last one has inspiration and there was one with happiness and, but, the core practices are always, you know, get still, get quiet. And the reason why I'm such a big advocate for it is because it's benefited my own life, you know, massively. We probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now if I hadn't started really investing in my meditation practice back in 2003 when I met my teacher and went all in on it. And it changed, it changed so much. And people often ask, you know, what's the biggest benefit you got from meditation? Because what's interesting about my story is I didn't come to meditation from some rock bottom moment. I came to it through following curiosity, which I talk about in the book. Yeah. And I never considered myself to be a particularly stressed out person. And I see a lot of people saying, you know, when, we, when the subject comes up about meditation, oh, I don't need meditation. I'm not stressed. You know, I sleep well at night and all that. And that was my experience too. So when I look at what I've gotten from meditation that I think is valuable to pretty much everybody is a stronger connection to my intuition. Mm. And so that has freed me up from having to sit there and, you know, deliberate about things. And most of what our intuition is pointing us toward are hard things. You know, go work out even though you don't feel like it. Eat the healthier option even though you'd rather have the donuts and the fries, 
apologize first, even though they're at fault, you know? <laughs> oh, not that one. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. So I can deal with the fries, but apologies. Exactly. Whatever your thing is that yeah. you're holding back, your intuition will, you have a stronger connection to it. It'll turn from a still small voice that you can barely hear into a loud, annoying voice, and you won't be able to ignore it. And what you find is that when you follow through on it more often than not, your life ends up better than it would have been otherwise when you were trying to stand your ground against this the situation that uh, that was really about protecting your ego. Yeah. And so it exposes our blind spots. I, I, I relate meditation to Wonder Woman's lasso. Mm. Do you know the power of Wonder Woman's lasso, the superpower? No, it's it, not invisibility. No, it's a truth serum. Oh, that's right, yes. You can't lie if you have that lasso around you. And meditation is oh. like that. It's really hard to BS yourself if you've been meditating on a daily basis. Got to hide Skyler's lasso. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you talk about being honest and all that. And, and obviously, you know, it could be a very deliberate, intentional thing, or you can just meditate. And the idea to lie will be so painful that you just won't allow yourself to do it. Like you kind of have to do it and accept whatever consequences come as a result of that. And it's that old adage, the truth shall set you free. Mm. You know, and, and when we yeah. talk about truth, we can talk about also living in authenticity with your, your heart and, and what you, what's in integrity with your, what you're feeling internally. And so all that makes you free. And that's what causes you to not hold on to things so tightly externally that you think you need to identify or define who and what you truly are when, when, when who and what you truly are is really that spiritual essence that in your finest hour, is the thing that propels you to stand up to injustice and to help and truly protect the vulnerable people around you and be generous in spirit and all the things that we, you know, we want to be deep, 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 deep down. And when we go to movies and we see the main character being these ways after overcoming some obstacle, it makes us tear up because we identify with that aspect in ourselves. But it's just so hard to do it IRL, you know, in real life. That's right. And um, and so meditation is the is the key domino in that regard. It, you can do all these things without meditation, mm -hmm. and you can look throughout history at the most iconic figures of change and revolution: the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm Xs, the Gandhis. They've all we won't put Gandhi. Gandhi was a meditator, but you know, everyone. You can make significant change without a meditation practice, but, but there is always some sort of side effect when you don't have a release valve, right? So mm -hmm. in King's case, King was manic depressive. He was a chain smoking, philandering, you know, person, human mm -hmm. doing his best, but he had to have these outlets because he was living life under the constant threat of death. Mm -hmm. And you look at anyone else's life close enough, read their biographies, there's always some like dirty outlet for the stress that you're under when you're truly living an authentic life. And I consider meditation to be like a clean outlet, a really clean release valve, where the only side effects are you get happier, you get more fulfilled, you sleep better at night, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I like to try to encourage people to at least consider adopting that as a foundational practice because it's going to allow you to do all the other things you already want to do better. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you say that 
a, a practice can sharpen your intuition. I, I think oftentimes meditation really addresses one's respective sort of Achilles heel. It, it is so protean in its utility where like, for example, for me, you know, where it was most useful is finding and cultivating that space between stimulus and response. So there's the famous Viktor Frankl quote between stimulus and response. There is a space within that space lies your liberation. You know, I was a very kind of trigger happy person for a big chunk of my life. You know, something would happen and I would be something political or I'd get something, you know, an email and immediately like I'd want to respond, you know, or react really. And I found that as I developed a practice, it was more like, hmm, okay. And I began to be able to assess events mm -hmm. for the nature of the event itself without lopping a lot of judgment on it and having an emotional, immediate emotional response. And, um, and that's been uh, very profitable for my life. Um, I've given myself a 24-hour moratorium on re reacting to emails, text <laughs> yeah. messages, things that would normally kind of rub me the wrong way. Yeah. And just no matter how badly I want, and sometimes I'll actually sit up and draft out the email that I would send back right away. The Scud missile, I would fire back right. in their direction, but I won't send it. I'll <laughs> yeah. wait 24 hours and I'll revisit it then. And, and if I don't have 24 hours, I'll meditate first. I'll write it out, then meditate and go back. And you always change it. You always come back from a more compassionate place. Every time. And it just helps you put yourself in that other person's shoes a lot more and see the experience more, more objectively than subjectively, in which case you can probably glean insights around how they could have come up with that perspective. And then, and then do the mature thing, which is, you know, um, taking responsibility. Yeah. And yeah. And giving what you want to receive. If you want, obviously, you want people to take responsibility when you have conflict. So give give that, even if they can't see that it's their fault. You know, mm -hmm. um, you're engaged with them. So at the end of the day, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. At the beginning of the book, you talk about sort of de excitation. So it made me think of this wonderful Alan Watts quote. Um, he says. As the ocean waves, the universe peoples. Mm. So a wave is an individual expression of the ocean, mm. and uh, but then it diffuses back into the body of something bigger, mm. something greater than itself. And we often associate what it's like to be a self <laughs> with the wave, <laughs> not the universe. Mm -hmm. But And I never thought about it this way, but you started to talk about stillness and de-excitation as a means for the wave disappearing or kind of diffusing back into the ocean. It's beautiful. Remembering, remembering its oceanic mm. status. Yeah. Right. So that's what it's doing. It's remembering itself. Yeah. And then when it comes back into the individual expression, it brings some of that remembrance with it. Maybe not on a conscious level, but there's something deep down that makes it feel more connected to the moment, to other people, to situations and circumstances that it may otherwise judge as not being useful or obstacles to their path. And when you can re reframe it from the inside out, which is the basis of spiritual minimalism, it gives you more presence to be able to move through it with more efficiency and to glean insights along the way. Yeah. 
And when you feel connected to something greater than yourself, compassion and um, collective joy, all these things start to emerge as almost barometers for your progress mm -hmm. in a way. You, and you can become, you, you can notice them. You're like, oh, yeah, I used to not identify someone else's pain or joy as my own. And now I do a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so there are these, there are these little cues that we can notice as we, as we progress. Um, so for anyone that, uh, you know, believes they have to wear a saffron robe and rake pea gravel for eternity <laughs> um, to be a meditator, can, can you, uh, you know, unravel that concept for people and I, you know you you do break it down into these 10 steps i actually have them written down okay. if you want to take yeah let's very briefly people i'll give them yeah, to you just I was actually you need. Ask you that i don't remember them by, yeah by heart. They, they, so the 10 steps to the minimal i call it the minimalist approach to meditation it's very simple so i say early in the day sit with comfortable back support and set a gentle alarm 15 minutes to 20 minutes and then close your eyes and then you can start with three deep breaths just to relax your body and then let your breathing return to normal. And here's the real key here, okay? This is where people's meditation can go off the rails. They don't do this. You want to maintain a friendly attitude with all of your thoughts. And <laughs> So in other words, you don't have to notice your thoughts. You don't have to let go of your thoughts. All you're doing is you're adopting a friendly attitude towards the thoughts, the thoughts that you would otherwise shame. I call it thought shaming in my book, Bliss More, where you're beating yourself up for having this thought or that thought. Or And I wrote about this in my book, Bliss More, this idea of thought shaming, which is simply, you know, beating yourself up over having certain thoughts and not other thoughts. A lot of people think when I'm meditating, I should be thinking about the fact that I'm meditating as well as thinking about waterfalls and rainbows and being in the white light and all of that. And what I'm suggesting with adopting this friendly attitude about your thoughts is that even if you're thinking about your favorite spaghetti recipe or a conversation or to-do list or some goal you may have or something not so nice that happened to you a year ago or five years ago, to not look at those thoughts as inappropriate. And, um, and I cited this, this study in my previous book, Bliss More, about thought suppression. Uh, it was a Harvard study it was called the white polar bear study. People can look it up. Maybe you mm -hmm. can put it in your show notes. Yeah. Um, where they tested students to see how focused they can be on a white polar bear. Just thinking about white polar bears. And then they tested them um, for the same amount of time, seeing if they could let their minds roam free without thinking about a white polar bear. Mm -hmm. And when they weren't supposed to be thinking about white polar bears in the second half of the study, what they found is that they thought about them more than they thought about them when they were specifically instructed to only think about white polar bears. And so what they concluded from this study was that if you try to resist any thought about anything, you're going to end up thinking about it more than if you just are friendly towards it. And number two, if you try to focus on any thought about anything, 
after about three or four seconds, your mind is naturally going to deviate to an unrelated thought. So this whole thing about monkey mind, it's it's not accurate. It's just it's the nature of the mind. That's the nature of your mind. And if you if you resist that nature, you're only going to there's only one natural outcome and you're going to create more of what you don't want, which are thoughts. Mm -hmm. So the irony is that when you can have a friendly attitude towards those thoughts, those same thoughts, those thoughts will start to fade faster into the back of your awareness. They may not go away, but they won't dominate your awareness while you're meditating. And that's one of the keys to having a settled mind. Mm. So you want to practice that. That's good. Which means when your mind wanders, you know, that's fine. And then uh, when your alarm sounds, you take three more deep breaths to bring yourself out and you slowly open your eyes. And that's the 10 step process to the yeah. minimalist approach to meditation. Yeah, I find that really helpful. It's laid out in the book mm -hmm. too. So and it's people, in greater detail in Bliss More if people want to yeah. go back and find that book. And um, yeah, it's interesting. There's another study out of Harvard by these happiness experts. I think it was Dan Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth. I mentioned it on the show maybe once or twice before. Um, but they wrote a paper called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. Mm. And um, basically what they found was that the happiest people are actually thinking about what they're doing, that those things aren't divorced. You know, you're not doing one thing while, you know, thinking about something else off in the future, kind of like what we already talked about when you wash the dishes, wash mm -hmm, the dishes, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought the interesting thing about that was that thoughts, as they arise within the context of a meditation are actually an opportunity because what they actually found in this study was it, it wasn't that thoughts that people didn't get distracted. People did. That was normal. But the happiest people were the ones that were able to refocus and come back mm. to the thing that they were actually doing. Yeah. They didn't have to spend time creating a story about what that means that right. they got lost. In yeah. And so that's the use the utility of the breath there, mm -hmm. which is just, okay, cool. That random thought came up about the Red Sox or the Dodgers or whatever it happens to be. Now I'm just coming back here. Mm -hmm. And over time you get trained that way and the greater ability or capacity you have to come back, it appears anyways that the, the, the more still and happy you are. Yeah, hundred percent. And and in my sort of in person comprehensive trainings, I use a, the tool of a mantra for that to come back to this mantra. Right. And the mantra is really just a training wheel to to get the brain to hardwire itself to do that on its own. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, you don't need the mantra as much. And yeah. So you'll have whole meditations with no mantra. Mm. So when people say, "Oh yeah, I just want to get a mantra," you know, and kind of show try to figure this out for myself, it oftentimes doesn't work in the same way because they don't realize you're using a mantra so that you don't have to use a mantra. It's not about thinking or focusing on this mantra the whole time that right. you're meditating. Um, so there's more subtle ways to it. And it really is an art. It's a really beautiful art. When you understand it, it's not unlike swimming. When you understand swimming, mm -hmm. you can have an enjoyable time in water, any body of water. Yeah. And when you don't understand swimming, you can have a nightmarish time in a swimming pool that's only six feet deep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find that there are these tools, whether it's a mantra or a drishti 
or a sonic, some other sonic tool, or even like a Malabid, um, that provide an opportunity for a kind of single pointedness of mind, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can always come back to the mantra. You can always come back to the breath. You can always come back to the drishti. You can always, um, and the drishti is kind of um, flexible that way. It can be a sonic drishti or whatever it is. And that's, that certainly is a way to, to gimmick, I mean, a trick in some ways to get the mind to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, where, where you lay out, you know, we, we often tend to complicate meditation and make it like so complex that people are like, oh, God, I don't know it's for me. I'm going to judge myself. I'm not good at it. But how you lay it out, I think, is a the road for success. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing I will just say, um, kind of to sum up, you know, when you're talking about the focus on a lot of the little things, mm-hmm. particularly the way that we act and behave in relation to others, um, it, it's sometimes the smallest things that we repeat that create a certain reputation of who mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was a very insightful point. You talk about that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will just say that we both share a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues. We know a lot of people. And you have cultivated, I would say, the most uniform reputation. Everybody mm-hmm. says more or less the same thing in such a positive way about how you behave and comport yourself. You know, you're kind, you're responsive, you're steady, you uh, are thoughtful. Um, I just find that uh, across the board in anyone, and I've had dozens upon dozens of conversations about you with other people. And so you're modeling that well. Thank you. Yeah, I talk about um, final impressions, which I think we don't give enough attention to we 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 we're, we're we're really big on first impressions <laughs> making the best first impression yeah <laughs> we're all skilled in that yeah. um but what we tend to neglect is how we leave relationships how we leave situations not realizing that the smallest little infractions can end up culminating in a pretty bad reputation you know if you get known for the person who um doesn't uh, treat people nicely at the end, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you send mean messages or you didn't show up for an interview that somebody set up for you and never acknowledged it. Or, you know, you broke up with someone over a text or something like that. You know, if you do that over and over and over, that becomes your reputation. Essentially, yeah. nobody remembers what happened in the beginning when they first met you. <laughs> Everybody right. remembers how right. you ended it. Did they transition well out of a job? Yeah. Right? You know, and like, it becomes yeah. this sort of exaggerated, hyperbolic, right. grapevine version if it's kind of left to fester long enough. Yeah. And you just become this person that people may not even remember the details, but they know something kind of icky went down. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think if we brought more attention to that, we could go back and maybe clean it up. And call up someone, even if it's years later, and just, you know, take responsibility or maybe give more context to the situation. This is what I was going through at the time. I never really acknowledged it. I'm sorry. And and those things go a long way too. 
Yeah. You know, in terms of having people speak nicely on your behalf or defend you in rooms where people are speaking badly about you. And you just never know what relationship is going to transpire or benefit from from you taking these little small actions to to make amends or to reconcile or to just leave leave relationships and spaces better than you found them. So I'm encouraging people to do that as well. Yeah. Make a good final impression. Yeah. yeah. Always leave situations better. Leave people better. Even if it means that, you know, you are losing something in the process. Cause here's the thing I like to look at it as like, let's say I'm in a business deal with somebody who screws me. It's happened. Mm-hmm. I chose to be in this business deal with the person. No one forced me to be in that situation. So ultimately, it's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a relationship with a narcissist, I chose to be in that relationship. So yes, they are this or that type of person. They have these character flaws. Fine. Guess what? Everybody has character flaws. You have them. I have them. We all have them. So that's not really new information. But what can be inspiring about that is when you can bring yourself to the point where you can take some responsibility, if not all responsibility, for you know, having betrayed your boundaries or whatever the thing was that you weren't listening to inside that allowed you to be in that situation for as long as you were in it and to learn whatever you can learn from that to inform Mm -hmm. your next, your next choice, you know? So, um, if you gave your word to someone and even though maybe they don't honor their word as much, it's not about them not honoring their word. This is a relationship between you and you. You need to honor your word. And then if you do that in a situation or with a person that you don't think deserves you honoring your word, I, I guarantee you, you'll never put yourself in that situation again. You'll be even clearer the next time. You'll screen even better the next time, as opposed to making it all about their fault. A nation have done this or that. So I'm not going to you know, honor my word or whatever. And the truth is, you don't know what's going on with that other person. You don't know. I was at dinner the other night with a friend of mine and there was a couple sitting next to us and they brought out dessert for the couple and it had a candle in it. So evidently it was somebody's birthday. The guy was on his phone and the woman, while the guy was on the phone, the woman blew out the candle (laughs) and started eating the dessert. And my friend who I was with got so upset. She was like, oh, my God, I, I hate when I see couples and the man is on his phone and not paying attention and da-da-da-da. Yeah. She created this whole story. Right. And I was saying, I was like, well, we don't know what actually is happening at this at this table. We don't yeah. know what their dynamic is. We can't assume that he may yeah. be on the phone with their child who's in the hospital. You just never right. know. And so they ended up leaving before us, and they came by, and they, we, we chatted. And it turns out they weren't a couple at all. This was like a gay guy taking his friend out to dinner to celebrate <laughs> her birthday. And yeah. so he was making arrangements for later that night, you know, yeah. with whatever he was going to be doing. And, uh, and so, you know, she yeah. wasn't a fit. Fin- right. The whole story that we create That's right. that takes us out of the moment is usually not exactly what's happening. You know, and yeah. I think it's just an opportunity when we find ourselves doing it. And I do it too. Sure. I'll create stories about stuff that piss me off and I'll try to be intentional about, well, let me just not, let me not make these assumptions. Just like the four agreements. Let me not make the assumptions. Let me just, you know, be open to whatever it is. And if I'm really that interested, 
I can seek to understand it better. Otherwise, I'll just keep be, stay in my lane and and keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, and usually, you know, you'll make better choices that way than than taking on someone's story and then going with it. And then you're making actions that may not be aligned with what you think is going to make the best final impression for you based on something you don't even really know about right? because you haven't really taken the time to know about that. So well, you can't know. I mean, there's a word called sonder, which is the realization that every single stranger that you see on the street has a life as complicated and convoluted as your own. Yeah. And it's like a museum. They're all museums. Yeah. And so how do you know what's yeah. going on? Um, anyway, such a joy. The book is Travel Light. I'm going to hold it up right here for those watching on the YouTube. Um, but uh, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. And it's just um, overflowing, brimming with, with gems and wisdom and fantastic principles. And uh, I love your mind. I love being with you. Um, and uh, I hope this is the midpoint, just the middle of our relationship because we've got to... We're just getting started, just man. getting going. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Light Watkins. If you want to learn how to meditate every day with ease, go to onecommune.com slash light to enjoy a free seven day pass to his 21 day meditation challenge. And if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, write us a review, preferably a positive one. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and doctors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you.